Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to this latest episode of the podcast. Um, I just want to remind everyone, if you're enjoying the podcast, please uh, subscribe. Um, if, if you're enjoying the episodes, please write favorable reviews. You can do that on the Stitcher app. You can do it on the Apple uh, podcast uh, site. There are many formats where the podcast is available. Um, good reviews and subscribers help increase the profile of the podcast and just um, allows it to, to reach more people. So if you're enjoying it, please uh, please do those things. Um, today I'm really excited to have uh, Dr. Bonnie Basler as a guest. Um, Bonnie's currently at Princeton, and before I, we kind of go into some details about her ongoing work, let me give a very brief introduction. Uh, she has a bachelor's degree from UC Davis, and she moved from California to Baltimore to pursue her PhD at Johns Hopkins University, and then moved back to the West Coast for a postdoctoral uh, stint at the Agaron uh, Institute in La Jolla, California, and then returned to the East Coast um, in 1994 as an assistant professor at Princeton where she's been uh, since then. She's risen through the ranks uh, and is currently a professor and the chair of the Molecular Biology Department at Princeton. And since 2005, she's also been an investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Uh, Bonnie has numerous honors and awards, just to name a couple. Um, uh, 2002 uh, MacArthur Foundation Fellow, elected to the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences uh, in 2004 as a fellow uh, and to the National Academies of Science uh, in 2006. She's won the Wiley Prize for Biomedical Sciences, the Ernst Sharing Prize, and many others. Um, And her research is really, I think, fascinating. It involves uh, how bacteria communicate with each other uh, through uh, cell-cell signaling, extracellular and intracellular signaling, collectively termed quorum uh, sensing. And throughout Bonnie's career, she's identified various chemical signals um, and underlying pathways that enable that uh, bacterial uh, communication. And she's also studied how bacteria communicate with eukaryotic cells, how they um, interact with uh, phages, and uh, and how different species of bacteria interact. So it's a very unique subject, uh, fascinating. And Bonnie, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Oh, thank you. I am delighted to be here. So, you know, uh, uh, maybe I'll just start with a brief story about myself. I'm going to learn a lot today because I don't know very much about quorum sensing, but I've always been kind of fascinated by bacterial genetics, and this goes back to um, when I was an undergraduate. I was a biochemistry major, but I think it was a friend of mine or maybe one of my professors who convinced me to take, it was a master's level course in biotechnology, but the focus of the class, which was a kind of a literature review journal club type format, was on uh, bacteriology. And I still remember, I think the very first papers we talked about in the class were the early studies from Jacob and Monod on how bacteria sense 
microenvironmental cues, um, sugar, and, and you know the, the, that whole mm -hmm. classic series of papers um, that elucidated the lac operon, basically, which um, they received the Nobel Prize for. So it, it was just you know these were very classical genetics type uh, approaches, um, but I thought I realized what a powerful system bacteria are for doing genetics. Um, and have been interested in it ever since then, although I've never formally studied bacteria. So I, I'm fascinated to hear about your work today on more cell-cell communication um, between bacteria, uh, this, this quorum pathway that I mentioned. But before we dive into that, I, I wanted to ask the Agaron Institute, is that a, mm -hmm. is that a microbiology-focused uh, <laughs> institute? Or what? you were a postdoc there, right? I was a postdoc there. It was a small, it doesn't exist anymore. It was a, a small not-for-profit think tank that really had its heyday in the 70s. And by the time I got there in the 90s, there were three labs left because uh, it was a sort of expensive way to do science, you know, just set up there by yourselves. But the man who was the my postdoc advisor and the father of this field, one of the two fathers of this field, he worked there. And um, he was kind of a loner, you know, and just was a gentleman scientist. He just loved doing experiments. And this Agaron Institute, you know, was a place where there was no other. It was just experiments. And so that's where he worked. And so that's where I went to work with him so I could start working on this idea of bacteria communicating and performing collective behaviors. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was a utopian. Yeah. Place right, and and what, most of the time that I was in his lab, it was just he and I, and uh, and then a wonderful technician, and so I had all of his attention for the four years that I was there. Did you do bacteriology as a graduate student? Um, okay, so you know you want to tell about your checkered past. I guess I'll tell you <laughs> about mine. Uh, let's see. So I am a geneticist. I mean, that's you know how you started this conversation. But I've actually never had a genetics class. Um, so you you have one more than I do. Uh, let's see. So I went. To, I as you told the audience, I'm a biochemist. I was a biochemist by training, and when I was an undergraduate. Uh, you know, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. You know, this a long time ago. I was a girl. You know, my I loved animals and the outside, and my parents, I loved animals. I still love animals. And my parents sort of channeled that into, oh, you want to be a vet, you want to be a vet, because, you know, <clears throat> this is way back. What did a girl do? They couldn't really imagine what a scientist does or a doctor. And so I went to UC Davis, which is a great vet school, yeah. Um, yeah. and I lasted about two weeks because I couldn't stand the gore. And, um, and so I was pretty lost in college, but then luckily I just saw this billboard that, so I was taking biology classes, biochemistry classes, you know, chemistry classes, kind of like what one would take if one wanted to be a pre-vet or pre-med. And I loved, loved the classes, but I didn't want to do the actual work. And, and so what was lucky was I found a billboard and there was opportunities to work in labs. And so I thought, oh, I wonder what that is. And so I volunteered to work in a lab and it was a bacteriology lab. And that was not like 
It was just the one that was there on that billboard. And then I never looked back. I just fell in love. And you've already said this. I fell in love with these critters and how fast you could do experiments and how what great model systems in this, what I thought then that they were really simple. And so my brain, I could wrap my brain around their behaviors and their parts. And, um, you know, you could have 10 to the ninth bacteria eight hours later. And I, you're going to see as we go along, I'm high energy. So it was sort of the right scale and the right pace for me. And then it was the only thing I knew. And so I kept working on bacteria until this podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> so right. you're, I've never tried anything else. Oh, so yeah. so you're yeah. the subject of your PhD thesis was bacterial, yeah. bacteria. Yeah. So yeah. then, yeah. yep, like you said, I went to Johns Hopkins and I joined a bacteria lab. And then what was, uh, so I had been working on parts, uh, you know, par, you know, chemical parts of these bacteria. But then at Hopkins, I had the chance to work on behaviors. So that was chemotaxis, which is how bacteria swim towards nutritious compounds and then they run away from noxious compounds and so that's a good behavior to do if you want to survive you know so they get the goodies and they run away from the poisons and i again i was working on the parts the the you know the actual components that allowed chemotaxis but i was really captivated with this idea and not my idea just this happened to be my thesis project that these bacteria tune into their environment and have behaviors. You know, they had sensory behaviors and they did something about it. And um, and so that was um, really important to me. And it um, and then it taught me that they were kind of smart. You know, so and, and and I guess I can go back and say, you know, that at this time and this is all so long ago, you know, bacteria were thought to give us the parts list. And you already mentioned this, you know, they gave us DNA, RNA, proteins, you know, components. But back then it was thought that if you really wanted to study interesting behaviors, you know, you had to study eukaryotes. Mm. And so this chemotaxis, which was a well is a very well studied behavior in bacteria. It gave me sort of the inkling that you know they actually had simple behaviors, you know, sensory behaviors, and and I was really interested in in how a bacterium could perceive or how any organism could perceive its world and respond, and um and that ended up being a, you know a little slice of that ended up being my the subject of my thesis. Mm-hmm. Okay, and. You know, Johns Hopkins is a very prestigious institution. When you were transitioning from there to your postdoc at the Agaron Institute, which I am not diminishing the Agaron Institute, although until, okay. I, until I looked at your bio sketch, I never heard of it. Um, right. Were people questioning your choice and yeah. what you were going to do next, or were you questioning yeah. it? So both. Um, I was questioning it. Both. Uh, so nobody had ever heard of it. I'd never heard of it. And so I'd tell you, so the way that happened, and then I'll come back to that, to your question, is that very luckily toward the end of my graduate career, so right, I'm working on bacteria, and I should tell you, I'm a biochemist, like really like a grind and find biochemist, smash them up and, you know, yeah. purify yeah. parts, right? And this is going to sound so ridiculous now. And so I'm, you know, I'm a graduate student, I'm reading papers, I'm going to seminars, and I really wanted to use a restriction enzyme because I thought that's what genetics was, you know, and it just 
seems like such a cool thing, a restriction enzyme in cloning a gene, which now you would call molecular biology, but I thought that was genetics. And so then, so I'm a little bit all over the map here, but then, so I got, so then I was lucky. So that was my feeling. Like what I knew I had this gap in my training, which was genetics slash molecular biology. And I'm working on bacteria. And I got to go to this little conference that was in Baltimore, sort of down the street from where I was living at the time. And, and so I should tell you that my chemotaxis project was on a marine bacterium. It was a bacteria, Vibrio, which mm-hmm. are like the E. coli of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so then there was a... The, uh, meeting that was put on and it was all about marine organisms so i got to go to this meeting because i was working on this and it was just down this couple miles down the road and um and so i'm sitting in the audience and there's you know some few hundred i suppose people there and most of the talks i can't understand at all and you know and so i'm sitting there thinking do i even like science because <laughs> these talks were inaccessible to me and we can talk about that later but but anyway but then this a uh, little guy named mike silverman who is going to figure prominently in my life in a few minutes gets up um and he is a geneticist he's one of the greatest bacterial geneticists and he gets up and he tells this story about how this beautiful bioluminescent bacterium makes light bioluminescence like fireflies except it's blue but only at high cell density Mm. Right, so the bacteria grow, they don't make any light, and then all of a sudden they turn on light together. And then he explains how a predecessor of his, Woody Hastings, who was at uh, Harvard, had found that if you took the, that there was a molecule which we now call an autoinducer involved. So if you took the, the culture fluids that the bacteria had been grown in at high cell density, if you spun the cells out and you took the cell-free soups and you squirted them on low on low cell density cells, the bacteria turned on light. So the, clearly there was a molecule outside. You know, you could add it mm-hmm. and the bacteria responded to it by turning on light. And Woody Hastings had actually figured out what that molecule was, the first. And I'm sitting there, and so Silverman is talking about how he got all the genes. So what he did was he just chopped up the chromosome of this vibrio, shotgun cloned it into an E. coli, and turned the lights off in the room and looked for an E. coli that glowed in the dark. Huh. Right? And that not only and so we got that critter and not only did it glow in the dark, it made this molecule and it only turned on light at high cell density. So clearly he got the light producing enzymes, the synthase for the molecule and the receptor all on one piece of DNA, you know, just sort of cloned into an E. coli. Mm. And I was sitting there, and I think this is probably the only epiphany of my whole life. I was sitting there in this audience, you know, most of these talks, I'm bored to tears. And this one, I'm sitting there thinking, like, I have now worked on bacteria since I was 19 years old. You know, now I'm like 26 or 27, you know, I'm ending my graduate work. How come I've never heard of this, of these bacteria making this communication molecule and being able to do this thing, you know, turn on light together? Right. It it was a crazy outlandish idea for the reasons I just told you that interesting behaviors were the purview of eukaryotes. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, come on, I'm, I'm supposed to know about bacteria. I'm supposed to know about vibrios. This is my field. Right? How come I don't know this? And I was just mesmerized by this talk. And then I also thought, I can't understand what he's talking about with all this genetics and genes and things like this, but surely I am smart enough to turn the light off in the room and figure out which one of these is glowing, you know, and which one isn't. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I literally ran up to the podium after his talk and begged him to let me be my postdoc, let me be his postdoc. And eventually he relented 
And that's how I got to the ag run. I had never heard of the ag run either. Yeah. So he was just yeah. doing kind of pure basic research. Always. Uh, he yeah. was a kind of scientist that, um, you know, he. Ne- it, what I really found out, like when I got there, is the guy is, <laughs> is sort of pathologically shy. Like he hardly ever gave talks never traveled like I just happened to be in the audience on like the one talk he had ever given in a decade and I'm sitting there you know and it was the only meeting I'd ever like the first science conference I'd ever gone to and so it was quite a remarkable uh chance and then maybe I'll say something that'll be good for the younger scientists is I don't know anymore who that young you know 26 year old woman is but you know I remember being so afraid and so um having no self-confidence, you know, it's a real problem of mine. And somehow I actually, you know, screwed up my courage and went up to that podium and asked him for a job. And, you know, when I look back, I can't believe that the younger me did that. But like what I, you know, what I would say is he couldn't find me. I'm just sitting out there, one of hundreds of people, you know, and so if you don't ask, you can't get these jobs. And and obviously, what we're going to talk about today is I have never worked on anything since that moment, except, you know, bacterial communication and quorum sensing. And so I'm super glad that somehow, even though I thought I'm surely going to die if he says no to me, you know, I actually didn't. And he did say no initially. Right? Huh. Eventually, I, you know, just pestered him and then he said yes. But, um, you know, he didn't know me. And so anyway, it was an amazing moment. And then he became, he turned out to be this fantastic mentor and super generous. And he, he taught me genetics and yeah. molecular biology. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned it, it so, may have been your only epiphany. epiphany. Well, that's, that's uh, one more epiphany than probably 99% <laughs> of people. So, <laughs> Maybe. so, I mean, I, so it was just very good fortune at the same time. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, sometimes it gives me shivers, you know, that I, how that all, you know, I got in the luckiest, happiest life you can ever get. And, you know, this crazy, I mean, I remember driving down to this meeting in my Ford Escort, you know, (laughs) Uh, you know, and there he was. So, and and then you, you moved there shortly after you finished your, your PhD Mm -hmm. and how, how long were you a postdoc in his group? So I was in his lab for four years. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and then what we did, just and maybe that's what you want me to tell you. Yeah, so I was with him for four years before I moved here to Princeton. And so what we did, okay, so you, you want to really talk about science. So what we did, so I told you his experiment, right? So he knew there was this autoinducer, and then he and his former student, who was named Joanne Ingebrecht, did the experiment I told you. They chopped up the chromosome of this bacterium called Vibrio fischeri, shotgunned it into E. coli, and they got the first what we now call quorum sensing system. They got a receptor that they called Lux. Everything's Lux for Luxor, the god of light. Mm. They got a receptor, Luxor, for receptor. They got the autoinducers. They got a gene that they called Lux-I for the inducer. That's the synthase. So this Lux-I enzyme makes this autoinducer. It interacts with Lux-R. It actually gets bound by this Lux-R protein. Lux-R is a transcription factor. And then it sits at the front of the luciferase operon, mm-hmm. turns those genes on, and the bacteria make light. And so it's a really simple circuit. The more cells there are, the more of this autoinducer there is that secreted outside of the cells. It's, it's increasing in proportion to cell number. So when the autoinducer hits a certain amount, which has to do with cell density, Lux-R can find it, bind it, and the bacteria all 
in unison turn on light, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what he found with his former graduate student, Joanne Ingebrecht. Yeah, I mean, I can so think I, of, I, I, sorry to interrupt, I was just going to say, yeah, I, sure. I can think of so many things that could go wrong with that type of experiment. Oh, <laughs> if all those genes hadn't been on one piece of DNA, yeah. right, he'd still be turning, yeah, it was, it's, so, and of course, that's an advantage of bacteria. They put genes in packages, right, in operons, and so all of the regulatory genes and the luciferase structural genes were sitting together mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. chromosome of the original bacteria, right? Yeah. And that's how, you're right, that's how they got it. It was an amazing landmark experiment so i go there right and what and you've already sort of hinted at it so all they could get right all they could get i mean they got that they got quorum sensing but all they could get is genes that are together on the chromosome and so when i went to mike's lab we wanted to know if there was more to it right and so we wanted to do experiments in vivo and so i mean in the vibrios for exactly the reasons, for all the reasons of what could go wrong with the experiment that, that they did, right? We want to find other things. So what he and I decided to do was to work on that bacterium that he and Joanne had worked on was called Vibrio fischeri. And so we decided to work on a cousin of Vibrio fischeri called Vibrio harvii. And that was because you couldn't do genetics in Vibrio fischeri. There weren't ways to make mutants. There weren't transposons. And of course, you've got to remember, this is all a million years ago now, right? We didn't have genome sequences, nothing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, none of this, right? And so, but in Vibrio harvii, Mike had gotten some genetic techniques worked out. So you could do a mutagenesis, you could put genes in on a plasmid, you could move genes around. And so we thought, let's take this on in Vibrio harvii. And what we knew about Vibrio harvii was that there, that if you made cell-free fluids from dense cells and squirted them on dilute cells, they made light, so there's an autoinducer, and they only made light at high cell density. So what I was going to do was just quick mutagenize, once I learned how to do mutagenesis and stuff like that, I was going to quick just mutagenize Vibrio harvii and dispense with these Luxi and Luxar genes, right? These two bacteria really closely related. They both make light at high cell density. They're both Vibrios, right? I would get rid, I would knock out the genes that they had already found and then find out what other lie affect bioluminescence, right? Like the idea of, of how do these organisms sense their environment? That was cool to me. You know, mm-hmm. how do they sense different stimuli? Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I go to Mike's lab, he teaches me how to do mutagenesis. And for like a year, I mutagenized Vibrio harvii looking for dark mutants, thinking if you don't have the autoinducer, you don't have the receptor, you can't turn on light. Mm-hmm. And every mutant I got was in the luciferase structural genes, right? The actual genes that make the enzymes that make light. I could never get a regulatory mutation. And that was confounding to me because I knew there was an autoinducer, so there had to be a receptor. And, um, okay, maybe I had a second epiphany. So then one day, instead of just, you know, repeating the same experiment that wasn't working (laughs) again, I actually thought, why isn't this working? Uh, You know, and maybe I could have done come to this idea faster, but I didn't. And I could think of two reasons, right? And they're obvious. One is if the genes were essential, you're not going to knock them out. But I couldn't imagine that because luciferase wasn't essential. You know, mm-hmm. these, you know, why would you can knock out luciferase? The bacteria didn't care. Why would you care if you misregulated it? And then I could think of another reason. What if there were two autoinducers and two receptors? And so then if my transposons knocked out an autoinducer receptor, and you know they were redundant, and mm-hmm. another one would function, mm-hmm. and the bacteria 
it would still make light. And so then I'm like, oh, my God, you're such a moron. You know, how could it take you this long to get that idea? But, you know, that's why you, they don't make you a professor right after yeah. graduate school, right? And so anyway, so then I had a new strategy. I thought, okay, why don't I look for mutants that are dim? Right, So I know the luciferase structural genes are there, but they don't quite pump it up enough, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe I could get regulatory genes. So I changed my strategy, did that, and lo and behold, it became clear that there were multiple autoinducers and multiple receptors feeding in to this pathway. And mm-hmm. so that became the first um idea that these bacteria could actually have multiple, you know, have language, you know, they could have more than one word, right? So they could have multiple autoinducers and receptors, you know, that controlled collected behaviors. And I should also maybe say now is that, you know, we, we started this working on bioluminescence, right? Because it, because the bacteria made bioluminescence, it was amazing readout, right? You can, measure bioluminescence over four orders of magnitude quantitatively. And this is all before before GFP and RFP yep. and all these fantastic techniques that we have now. It was this gift that these bacteria gave us. It, was, it made the invisible world of these bacteria visible to us, right? You know, because how do you know if a bacterium is doing something alone or something together? You can't see them. You can't see their behaviors. But bioluminescence was the way in. Yeah. And then what we learned yeah. later, which you're, we're going to talk about, is that there's many autoinducers. There's multiple receptors. These is, there's lots of words in this chemical lexicon. And then typically in every bacterium that's been studied, hundreds and hundreds of genes, including in these original bacteria, hundreds and hundreds of genes are controlled by quorum sensing. Back then, we were measuring light as the readout because we didn't know about any of those other genes. We didn't have convenient ways to measure them. But now we get it. It's a big deal when a bacterium decides to change from going it alone to acting as part of a group. The way they do it is by communicating with these chemical words. They count their numbers, and they recognize when they have the right number of bacteria and they all do something together, they can be successful at these tasks that they couldn't accomplish if they acted alone simply because individually they're inconsequential. They're too small to make a difference. And bioluminescence is one of those traits. Yeah, that's amazing. Right? And so anyway, yeah, so that was the way in. And then these goofy mutants of mine that wouldn't behave <laughs> turned out to be so lucky because then it show. And again, this goes back to the point you made. They couldn't have figured this out in E. coli, right? These genes were all over the chromosome, right? Mm. But because I was doing it in the act, criterion mm-hmm. right and i right then i could find that there were multiple autoinducers multiple receptors hundreds of genes controlled you know by this process yeah. right and that was actually you know we didn't know it at the time but that was the reason not to be working in recombinant e coli yeah right, right. Were, were was the luciferase area competitive at that time or were you one of the few no, labs oh, okay. working so, on luciferase yeah so actually so there so this bioluminescence you know in fireflies and mm-hmm. bacteria in all kinds of organisms fish things you know uh squid there was huge interest in 
luciferase. And I think that's because, you know, you can't be a scientist and think it's not like the most stunning, beautiful thing in the world that these organisms make these beautiful light, right? And so there was real interest in luciferase, like how luciferase did the magic of an enzyme, you know, making light, you know, whether it's fireflies or bacteria. But in terms of working on this crazy project, it was me and, you know, there were, it was me and Mike, right? You know, and so what's, what I, maybe I should have said this earlier, you know, so Woody Hastings with his student, Ken Nielsen, made that original discovery that I told you about. They found the autoinducer. They showed this density-dependent bioluminescence in Vibrio fisheri. That was in the early 70s. And then there was essentially no big finding until Mike and Joanne, did the genetic experiment that I told you, and that was in 1984 and 85. And then that just sat there, basically, until I happened into Mike's lab, and then we started getting going again. And I always find that curious, and I think part of it is because uh, these Vibrio fisheri and then Vibrio harvii, you know, these were just these anomalous bacteria from the ocean. They weren't medically or industrially important. No one had ever heard of them. They had this curious trait of bioluminescence, you know, which we thought was awesome for genetics, you know, for the, you know, to have this readout. But I think that, that it was kind of considered a one-off, like perhaps, you know, yeah, these crazy bacteria that live in the ocean, you know, have this weird collective behavior, you know, but so what, mm-hmm. right? It's not relevant. And, and, um, but then right at the end of my postdoc in 93 and 94, we were getting what I was telling you, like Mike and Joanne had gotten what they got. I was like, wait a minute, there's multiple molecules here. Like this is going to be, you know, these bacteria, you know, they're not one, you know, they got a lot of, they've got words, right? And, and they've got a way of, you know, mon- and later I'll tell you that one molecule is for sensing self and one molecule is for sensing other. Like they can distinguish self from other, you know, and friend from foe with these molecules. And I was starting to get ideas like that. And then another lucky thing was like ni- right in 1993 and 94, that's when the first genomes, a bacterial genome started to be sequenced, you know, right around then. And then other scientists found the circuit that Joanne and Mike had found in Vibrio fisheri in terrestrial bacteria. Hmm. Like they found Lux I and Lux R genes, and they controlled virulence in Pseudomonas, in Erwinia, in Agrobacteria. And these were, you know, relevant bacteria, you know, that caused disease. They lived on Earth, you know, not in the ocean. And so all of a sudden, there was this moment where it was like, maybe this isn't a one-off, yeah. right? You know, that, that this could be widespread you know, widespread, back there was four cases, but that this could be prevalent, this idea of bacteria communicating with chemicals and controlling group behaviors, and the group behaviors became behaviors that were medically relevant. And of course, that ends up, fast forward 25 more years, that ends up being true. Right. Right. At that time when you were, um, you know, when you were still doing your postdoc, were you getting resistance from the field uh, yeah. about so, your, yeah. you were studying it some specialized little event and just yeah, a so limited. There was sort of, yeah, so I don't want to say anybody, eh, mostly it was like a shrug of the shoulders, right? You know, like, right, for what you said, it was this goofy anomaly, right? Um, was one part, when I really got resistance was when I wanted to say bacteria could talk across species, right? You know, so um, that that was... Yeah, yeah, it was 
well, let's let's say, you know, like I put out 40 or 50 post, you know, applications for jobs and I got two interviews, right? So, you know, like, <laughs> you know, so I don't so I don't think it was exactly resistance or you know, part of the, I should be more clear. I want I've already said I have a really happy life. Yeah, no, everybody thought it was sort of this freakish um goofy thing and that sure this bioluminescent bacteria had this capability i mean the data were so strong both from woody from mike and then you know if i may from mike and myself Mm -hmm. but but that it was not relevant to how real you know bacteria functioned and then um but then these amazing things happened in 93 and 94 which is people found the genes that mike and joanne had found earlier and then they started to find the genes that i was finding right and we were out in front Right. Because it's right. all we'd ever thought about. <laughs> right. You know, right. So, you know, so, so I, you know, and then, you know, I, I guess we can, I don't really know what this podcast was to be about, but, you know, I told you I sent all these applications out and I didn't get the time of day, but then Princeton saw that same application. Now they're a powerhouse in microbiology and they took a shine to that as something that was going to, it was risky, but potentially, I mean, I'm thinking this is what, you know, they didn't let me in on their discussions, but it was risky, but potentially something really new, like if bacteria could do this and they appreciated, and of course you have to remember, I'm not at a medical school, I'm in this department, that all of us study model systems, you know, ways to get at fundamental mysteries, you know, flies and worms and zebrafish and bacteria and yeast and viruses. And so they loved model systems. And this luminescence output was so powerful, right? And this idea that these bacteria could do it together. And so they took a shine to my application and hired me, right? So, well, you know, maybe I we should give jelly, credit. I definitely to, landed jelly side up. Right? <laughs> give credit to the person who was chairing that search committee. Yes, he is my next door neighbor and has been. His name's Tom Silhavi, and now I'm his boss. You can imagine how that goes. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, and and uh, you know, so you know, I find it like, you know, on the one hand, there was resistance. You know, but then on the other hand, you can't be luckier than you know than I have to get a job at a place like I got. Well, there was right? there was resistance mainly because from from what you've told me, mainly because it was such a new concept. And yeah, um, and I wish, and, yeah, and I mean, this is gonna you know, science. We love new concepts, sort of. <laughs> you know, if you're like, the second you know, person. But, <laughs> Correct, right? And so I think, you know, you, you know, but, but then we can talk, you know, you, I mean, this sounds so arrogant for me. It's like, you know, you don't, I don't want to be second. I want to be the discoverer, right? And, you know, and I had a lot of support too, you know, because Silverman believed in me, Princeton believed in me, you know, because they believed in data. And, you know, in some way, I remember Silverman always saying to me, you know, Bonnie, the people who need to know, they know. You know, and I thought that was a really interesting thing that I live by. Right. And, you know, and they'll get it. And, you know, and time's on your side. So, exactly. You know, that, and that's now, a great right? attitude. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And he always taught me and we do this in my lab. You know, it's fun. It's not me against anybody out there. It's me pitting my wits against these bacteria that are, you know, still beating me. But, you know, anyway, we all, it was always fun. And, and I guess, I don't know, maybe it, and it was a different time and I was really naive and it never occurred to me that I wouldn't get to do this or somebody wouldn't let me have a job. You know, it never, maybe it should have never occurred to me that that would happen. And it didn't. Um, 
you know, so I was just merrily having a great time every day in Silverman's lab and a great time here. And I don't know if we want to talk about this. I had real trouble getting grants, like real trouble getting grants. Like I was a full professor before I ever got an NIH grant. Really? <laughs> you know, it's not for lack of trying. But but then on the other hand, you know, here I am and I'm you called me. Right. So it worked out. You know? yeah. And so you the know, yeah, the resistance from the 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 uh, funding uh, agencies had to do with biological relevance, disease relevance, or yeah, what, what, what was the rationale ge- there? Yeah, that it was that it was that it couldn't be true. I mean, was one of the things, and it's a funny thing, right? Because, well, yeah, that it wasn't, you know, that you should prove this in a pathogen, you know, that luminescence is this weirdo phenotype, you know, and that, and especially remember now, by now, by the time I move here, right, I've got these two molecules, and what I can show is that lots and lots and lots of other bacteria make this second molecule, what I called autoinducer 2. And that they would cross, you know, you could turn, you could add soups from one guy, you could turn on Harvey, you could add soups from Harvey, you could turn on the other guy. And so I wanted to say bacteria monitoring self with one autoinducer and other with another autoinducer. And so at this time, you know, just the idea of bacteria communicating and having group behaviors, you know, if people have known about bacteria for 400 years, never had they thought about bacteria having collected, be- you know, except for a few people, had they thought about bacteria having collected behaviors. So on the one hand, I want to say, me and Mike and other people by then, these bacteria have collected behaviors. So that's already kind of out there. And then I want to say on top of that, they're telling self from other, you know, they can talk across species. So I sort of had two strikes in terms of, you know, goofy ideas, but, um, you know, and, and I don't, think that's necessarily wrong um, to, for people to be skeptical, for scientists mm-hmm. to be skeptical mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. those concepts. Um, you know, what's lucky for me is that Princeton didn't fire me. You know, they had an intellectual bottom line with me, not whether or not I was bringing in grant money. And so they let me keep going in it. And, you know, and then eventually more and more people kept working on this and other people, you know, would find some of the things we found, find their own things and it became a field, right? And I probably, that's all how, how all new fields starts, by fits and starts and with a lot of skepticism, you know, and that's how they, you know, fields stay or go, I assume, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's, I, I want to be careful here that I'm not sounding negative, you know, it's been, a, I've had a ball. And it also never occurred to me that Princeton would fire me just because I couldn't get a grant, right? You know, so, yeah. I, you know, and we had so much fun in my lab. We still have fun. And, like, discovering these things and, like, trying to um, not do Me Too science, trying to, like, really, like, have new ideas. It was always fun. You yeah. know, and, and, and I'll just say one other thing. Why else wasn't my grant grant? Because I was female, Right. You know, this is 25 years ago, right? And and so I think the the having like sort of what I hope would be called eventually, you know, after my lifetime, maybe called creative new ideas. You know, I think back then, especially, you know, if a female has a creative new idea, she's crazy, right? You know, as opposed to bold and pioneering. You know, were, were you thinking that time. at the time? Never. I mean, when you that were never. No, so I was, I never understood that there was gender bias till I, I couldn't, am, no, okay, so we'll go back to who I was. Remember, I told you I lacked confidence. I could barely get myself to go talk to Mike Silverman, right? And so I really lacked confidence. And when you get to the place, 
you know, where you're like in charge of your, you know, your burgeoning lab, right? And your job is to bring in grant money, you know, so I would write grant after grant after grant. And, and, you know, the sort of way, you know, you're, it's the first time in your life as a scientist where you're, where there's nobody there to tell you you're doing okay. You know, your job is to tell everybody else they're doing okay, you know, but Mike had done that before me or, you know, and so then I kept getting turned down for these grants. And so it was really hard on my self-confidence, right? That I, um, you know, cause, and I thought it's me, I'm a loser. Or there's something wrong with me. Or I don't know how to write a grant or I'm not a good scientist. Right. So of course, and so it never occurred to me that people, the, the things that you're, talking about like that people wouldn't like the idea or think the idea that I thought was so captivating like these bacteria having group behaviors that people wouldn't just accept that and then also now I know that of course there had to have been a gender bias part of that but I didn't understand any of that back then because we didn't talk about these things back then Mm. right and but you know I just kept I would go out in my lab and these young graduate students had come they wanted to work on this they were finding these amazing things and I thought okay I'll just type I can type. And so I did. And it all worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And you've had HHMI money since yeah, what, it all 2005, out. 15 years <laughs> right? yeah. ongoing. That's wonderful. Yeah. I wanted to kind yeah. of delve into the pathway a little bit. So there, there sure. are actual transmembrane receptors for these Correct. auto-inducers. Um, right. It's and, very... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. And I, I'm just curious. I mean... So the, there's a signaling element to those receptors, intracellular signaling um, yeah. domains. Yeah, so it's very and, uh, and the cell wall is there. So I, I'm just yeah. curious yeah. how the and, sure, and how they're secreting these autoinducers, which are then feeding to other cells and maybe even autocrine correct. back to the, the secreting cell. And how does the exactly. cell wall play there and, and uh, sure. you know, the intracellular signaling as well? Okay, sure. So the way it really works <laughs> is that the bacteria bacteria are growing, right? So they divide and grow two, you know, one makes two, makes four, makes eight, right? So as they're growing, they're making and releasing these small molecules. And the molecules, as far as we can tell, they just they're small. They just diffuse out. They're not actually secreted. They just diffuse across the bacterial membrane and they get out. Okay, so then as the cells are growing in number, these autoinducers are accumulating in proportion to cell density. And then when they hit a threshold level, which is basically the KD of binding the receptor, these receptors are sitting in the bacterial membrane and they look very eukaryotic. Hmm. So they have an, a part sticking out, right, that detects the autoinducer, the external autoinducer, right? You don't want to detect the autoinducer that's made inside or you'll short circuit yourself. So they, they localize the receptors so that the detection part is sitting outside of the cell to measure the accumulated autoinducer that's outside. And when the autoinducer binds to the receptors, and I mean directly, the receptors actually bind these autoinducers at high cell density, and then that flips a switch in the receptors. And it turns out that the receptors can be either kinases or phosphatases, right? And so what happens is when the autoinducers are unliganded, the receptors are kinases. They're sending phosphate into the cell you know, through a series of phosphorylate, it's a phosphorylation cascade that turns quorum sensing off. And then when they bind the autoinducers, that flips the switch and the receptors transition from being kinases to phosphatases. So now phosphate flow through the circuit goes backwards. And in the unphosphorylated state, the system is on, 
And what happens is that a small RNA gets made, a set of small RNAs. And so like in eukaryotes, these are the bacterial version of microRNAs. Hmm. So these small RNAs get made, and then they control the translation of the master transcription factors that run the show. And then hundreds of genes turn on downstream based on whether or not those smaller, ultimately those small RNAs are made or not made. And that has to do with the, the, with the direction of phosphate flow through these receptors, you know, like eukaryotic receptors, except it goes backwards and forwards in, yeah. in bacteria. You know, eukaryotic phosphorylation cascades are a one-way street. Bacterial ones can go forwards and backwards. Wow, that's amazing. I, I have a couple questions there. So the transition from kinase to phosphatase, is mm-hmm. that through different domains of the protein, or does the same domain have a kinase and then a phosphatase activity? That's, so, I've never heard yeah. of that before. It's incredible. Yeah, so this is very common in bacteria. This is So the way bacteria sense stimuli are through these proteins, like the quorum sensing receptors. They're called two-component proteins because there's a sensor and a regulator, right? Mm-hmm. And so the sensors are very often kinases and phosphatases. And, the, and there's a problem. We don't have lots of crystal structures because they're transmembrane. You know, so the same problems everybody has with crystallizing these proteins. But the idea is that when the ligand binds, it makes a conformational change. Mm-hmm. And what happens is all that happens is the kinase is regulated. So the phosphatase is always running, and mm-hmm. it is in a different domain of the protein. Okay. But if you turn the kinase, but if you, but if the kinase is running, kinase activity dominates. But if you turn the kinase off, then it reveals the phosphatase activity. And some of the amino acids actually are used for both enzymes, which is really really cool, right? But that basically is the way we understand it: is the autoinducer regulates whether or not the kinase is. Dominant. I see. And that's a that's and, a serine threonine kinase or a histidine uh, no, yeah, kinase? You, you work on eukaryotes. No, it's histidines and aspartates. Huh. So the phosphate goes, yeah. And then and so what's interesting, which is different than what you're used to, serine threonine kinase, is that histidine and aspartate phosphate are same energy. So you can go backwards and forwards, right? That, right in right. So when the ligand is not bound, you know, phosphate is traveling one direction through the same amino acids, same residues. And when the ligand is bound, phosphate is traveling the other direction through the same residues. And bacteria do this a lot, not just quorum sensing. Like there's thousands of two-component systems in bacteria, and they all work essentially the way I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. And you they know, all, the stimulus they, that they detect are different. Yeah. Do they all involve that microRNA? Like uh, No. So that's it. So, so – no. So sometimes just the regulator is a transcription factor and it turns on genes. And why the quorum sensing system has all these bells and whistles put into it, like a small RNA right in the middle of this, you know, we think that has to do with dynamics. You know, it can make the system faster. You get higher input-output ranges, right? Small RNAs, just like microRNAs in eukaryotes, have a lot of features, right, that they give the system. But many Many times, these two component systems don't involve small RNAs. Mm. Yeah, that's that's uh, some, that's a new concept. I mean, from a, a mammalian cell biology perspective, it's it's new. That you know, I think that. So what we think is that that I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but it's not thought that two component systems like gave rise to G coupled proteins. Mm. But they're sort of the analog. This yeah. is how bacteria do that trick that you guys know about. 
in eukaryotes. And then I should give a plug for these small RNAs. You guys were all over microRNAs before the bacteria people got there, much to our shame. But it turns out that the bacteria are loaded with small RNAs. That's a kind of new field the last 10 or 15 years. And they are like, analogous to eukaryotic microRNAs in that they get made, they don't get translated, they're really tiny, they're actually they're bigger than the microRNAs that you guys do, and then they do this post-transcriptional regulation, you know, they sit on messenger RNAs, and they either cause them to be translated, or they cause them to be degraded, right, and so it really is, again, an analog of what microRNAs do, um, and, you know, like E. coli has hundreds of small RNAs, right, and it was sort of a level of, um, regulation that got missed mm. you know during the heyday of bacterial genetics in the bacterial um, species you study are, are is there an endogenous CRISPR uh, pathway there or is that another um, so other the, bacteria? Lots of bacteria that, so uh, I, so I do a lot of study on cholera and on this Vibrio harvii and they have CRISPRs mm-hmm. they do they're they're not studied the way the ones you know that have given rise to our understanding and then also to all these you know, revolutionary biotechnological advances. But, they, you know, my guys are in, are infected by phages, too, and so they have CRISPRs, but we don't know what the phages are that, that these CRISPRs are trying to target in these. My bacteria are slightly less domesticated and well understood, right, than lots of others that people work on CRISPRs. Mm, okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. If you're using genetic approaches and there's an endogenous CRISPR system, uh, that probably, you know, can limit well, some things. But the thing, but remember, so just if I may, you know, so CRISPRs have uh, the use of CRISPR for genome editing. You know, let's call it in basic eukaryotic biology. Remember that bas- that allows you guys to do what bacterial geneticists could do already and I don't mean that in a bad way I mean that's the virtue of bacteria we can knock out genes we can make a point mutation we can move genes around we can put plasmids in and so we don't actually need CRISPR right to make mutations or to edit a genome because we have all these fantastic tools right from the founding of our field that lets us do those tricks right with CRISPR there or not there right you know like we kind of have that toolbox and like what I think is that CRISPR allowed eukaryotic geneticists or people that said eukaryotic or to basically do you know bacterial genetics sort of yeah right yeah makes yeah. sense yeah um, you mentioned the interspecies uh, communication and so I I guess a basic question I have is in nature are are there mixed uh, you know populations of bacteria so if you go into right. Um, into the seawater or into the soil, you have these biofilms. But within a within a, a given biofilm, are there multiple or you know several yeah. uh, different types of bacterial species? Yeah, there are. So the norm everywhere except in you know a lab and a test tube is that bacteria live in remarkable mixtures of you know dozens, hundreds of species, like, you know, in your gut, you know, this magical microbiome we have now is supposed to have 600 species of bacteria in your gut, you know, your teeth, hundreds of species in the biofilm on your teeth, right, on your skin, you know, in the ocean, in the dirt, right, and so that is the way bacteria live in the world, it's not the way they've traditionally lived in a lab, 
right? And so maybe I'll, you know, do my quorum sensing plug, right? So the challenge for my lab now, like we spend, you know, 20 some years finding these parts and maybe I should be a little bit more clear. Like what we get now is that every domain on earth is participating in these quorum sensing conversations. And so you said this in your introduction, these bacteria are communicating with their eukaryotic hosts and it matters whether it's a beneficial or hostile relationship. They communicate with themselves. They communicate with their cousins. They communicate with other, right? They can tell, are you identical to me? Are you related to me? Are you not related to me? And I mean, in the bacterial world, are you the enemy? And then now, of course, in the newest stuff that we've done, and you said this as well, is that we get that these stages that are infecting and killing bacteria are also participating, at least as eavesdroppers, to, to survey bacterial cell density and exploit quorum sensing to kill their their hosts. And so what we get now is probably quorum sensing spans all domains, right? And so it's not <laughs> what Mike Silverman, you know, originally found, you know, which is, uh, you know, the Vibrio Fisher I made this, it was an awesome finding, yeah, you know, yeah. but that, that there was going to be this thing that you just track your own cell density, you know, of your, of your absolute clone mates, you know, and did something. And like what we think is that it's an incredible lexicon of molecules that allow these bacteria to actually tune in to where they are, you know, who they're with, you know, and and that is far beyond their own species or even their own kingdom, right? And so that's sort of how we're thinking about it now. And then to go back to your question, you know, in infection or even in health, like how quorum sensing works robustly, given that there's, you know, there's got to be lots of molecules. Obviously, we haven't discovered yet. We discover a new one every other year, at least, you know, and other people discover them every year, too. You know, like this diverse chemical lexicon, like how quorum sensing gives robust information, given that there's cheating and free writing and eavesdropping and, you know, manipulating going on in these incredible mixtures that are 3D and rearrange over time and bacteria and molecules come and go and there's eukaryotic hosts and there's, part, there's you know, parasites, right? If we have to figure out how this actually works outside of a test tube soon, right? right. That's yeah. a grand yeah. challenge for us. And so you're working on that and, and model systems yeah. or in, yeah. in vivo? Yeah, always, yeah, for me, always model systems, right? And so, like, if I could figure out how it works with two species present, that would be interesting. But, yeah, so what we're trying to do now is to stop just shaking one bacterium around in a flask. Let me go back a little bit. We spent 20-some years shaking you know, a single species around in a flask, and we found a lot of parts. You know, we found molecules, receptors, feedback loops, small RNAs, the downstream genes, the regulators, you know, and that's really, really fun. And we put together those networks, and, you know, that's what my gang does. And But then we made mutants in every single one of those things, and we made the autoinducers. We have synthetic autoinducers, things like that. And so we have a lot of tools. And so now I think we're actually finally in a position to take those tools and some level of understanding that we have and up the complexity. And so I, what I mean by that is put the bacteria in spatial constraint, you know, like not shaking in a flask where every bacterium perceives an identical environment to every other. You know, put them in biofilms, put them in microfluidic devices that have curves and turns and eddies and flow, right? Like what happens when these molecules get away? You know, that like never happens in a flask. Right. And like put them in mixed species. Right. And then, you know, basically give them space and time. Put you put a eukary- 
carry out a coast there, put a phage there, right? And really try to understand how bacteria access quorum sensing information in scenarios that at least start to approximate the ones they really live in in nature. Now, my lab is never going to do something where they really live in nature, right? You know, um, but something that at least is is a model that has more complexity in it than the ones we used when we first got into this game. That's what we're trying to do now. And I think what's cool about that is that it's giving us brand new quorum sensing autoinducers and brand new parts, right? Like I think the ones that the bacteria use when they're alone and they're in a perfect environment in a flask, we got those. But now we're getting all these cryptic ones that they never bother to express when they're just shaking around by themselves because they don't mm. need to, right? And so, you know, we got like now that there's these phages involved and eukaryotes involved, and so we're still in some way finding the kinds of things we found all the years, you know, new receptors, new autoinducers, new feedback loops, new things like that. But but we never, they either they weren't expressed or we missed them when we were just looking at light, you know, in a flask. A vibrio harvii by itself. Yeah, yeah. I think the the topic of crosstalk between the bacteria and eukaryotic cells is also very interesting. Are there are there auto inducer like chemicals coming from eukaryotic cells, or can the bacterial auto inducers signal into a, a eukaryotic cell? Has anyone looked at that? So, so that that is starting. Right. And the answer to the first question is yes. So for so we had found early on a molecule. That I think I said this. We call auto inducer two because it was the second one that we found. And that's this universal auto inducer that's used for interspecies communication among bacteria. So we recently found that human intestinal cells make an auto inducer two like activity. Right. And so the idea. So it's not auto inducer two. It has a different structure. But the idea that the dialogue it's not a monologue for you know in your gut right and that the eukaryotic host at least is using the molecule that's most widely spread and most widely used by bacteria you know if you want to maximally uh manipulate your microbiome you use the general molecule and so we think that for sure the host is participating in the conversation and whether what we're, we want to know is what does the host do in response that's your second question that we do not know but we are trying to figure that out, right? Like, what what is the is the host using the molecule itself, right, to to change its own behavior? The guess, just a guess, is yes. But for sure, it's manipulating the behavior of the microbiome and possibly pathogens that are in the gut. Yeah. So Has we it, know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has anyone taken Sorry. one of these receptors for the auto inducers and put it into? A mammalian cell and then yeah. stimulated with that auto inducer and yeah so I, to my knowledge that experiment ha- experiment hasn't been done right um, because you need the downstream components you know the receptor who would it give phosphate to yeah. right yeah. but the idea that you nowadays right you just squirt the auto inducer on and do like RNA seq or you know, right something like that you could actually start to get those things even if you didn't know the pathway right that's what we're trying to do. And I should be really honest, we're doing it in yeast. Yeast is a eukaryote, mm-hmm. much easier. We've got a knockout library. And so we are doing, in a baby step to get to like a human cell, we are doing exactly the experiment that you just asked about, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because we can do kind of bacterial genetics and ye- well, yeast genetics and yeast, right? Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of tools. And so that's sort of our bootstrap way to get to what we'd love to get to, which is a human cell, and ask that question. Yeah, right? that's, that's fascinating. Um, 
Yeah, yeah and I was and then, also thinking. Yeah, go ahead. Go. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting. Thing. Sorry it's about that. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> sorry that I interrupt you back. So, and then I also we also have a we have a really fun system, if I may, our newest system. We think is a sort of I don't know four way conversation where the host, meaning the human gut cells, they're covered in mucin. You know, so mucin is this protein that coats your gut cells and your microbiome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. eats mucin for a living. It's supposed to. It, they have mucinases. And every third amino acid of mucin is threonine. And the newest molecule we found is actually made from threonine, right? And so what we think then is that you, the human host, supply your microbiome, right, the substrate. Mm-hmm. Your microbiome makes the autoinducer, right? And then it turns out that that autoinducer makes a pathogen miscount, and disperse. So we think that it's an interkingdom communication system where the host makes the substrate, the microbiome uses it to make the autoinducer, and then together, you and your microbiome team up to fend off predators, right? Mm-hmm. Using quorum sensing, right? So that's one of our newest. We really think there's a eukaryotic component to these conversations. Let's so the that predator way. would be a virus or a... No, the predator is Vibrio uh, cholera. Another so bacteria. Cholera tra- so see. sorry, I should be more clear. So Vibrio cholera infects the, intes- infects the intestine, right? It gives this terrible diarrheal disease. And it uses quorum sensing, you know, like many pathogens, to decide, should I stay in the host or go? Stay in the host or go? And in this case, what cholera does, it causes this acute disease. It has this insidious strategy. It's It's infection strategy is get in grow like crazy and then in this terrible diarrheal disease disperse like by the gazillions to infect the next Mm -hmm. patient right Mm -hmm. that's what cholera does so quorum sensing at high cell density cholera disperses right it uses quorum sensing to say time to leave so you with your with this new autoinducer, what we're thinking is that the host makes gives substrate the microbiome makes the autoinducer and cholera disperses early Right, because it gets confused hmm. because your microbiome makes this molecule that causes cholera to miscount. I see. And if you're a mouse, you get less cholera disease, right? So we think that that's like one way that quorum sensing is being manipulated in the host. Hmm. And that's maybe linked to production of the cholera toxin as well, or is that yes, a so separate the, pathway? The auto inducers, quorum sensing controls biofilm formation and virulence, all the, the classical virulence factors, and it controls the dispersal process from the host, right? So cholera cannot be a pathogen if it doesn't have quorum sensing because it doesn't know when to turn on and off these genes. Oh, wow. So so there's is anyone pursuing that as kind of a therapeutic approach, well, you know, uh, looking at that four-way communication? Yeah, Right. It would be really cool to remember it's, it's this really um, simple molecule, the autoinducer, and it's made from threonine. So here, this part's fantasy. Okay, total fantasy, unproven. Maybe you could just give people threonine, or you could give them this autoinducer that's made from threonine, uh-huh. right? And or, you know, or, or help your microbiome to make more, right? And so we absolutely think that is a very interesting and could be a cost-effective strategy or a prophylactic. And so we are exploring that. Again, I want to be really careful here fantasy, right? We just found this autoinducer. We just found this pathway. It's our newest autoinducer, right? And so we're really interested in the idea that, well, for all kinds of reasons, that you can manipulate quorum sensing to make therapeutics, but this might be a really easy one yeah. of, you know, of, of because it's made from threonine. Yeah, and I, I 
I realize we're over an hour now. I just wanted to ask a couple questions, a um, couple more questions. Uh, as far as the quorum sensing cell-cell communication and bacteria, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of evolution and how that may be an origin for cell-cell communication in a, in a multicellular organism. Is is that the general consensus now, or I mean, is, are people <laughs> studying that evolutionary biology? Yeah. So, okay, so I'm brainwashed, right? So, of course, I'm going to think that, right? Like, I think this is the first, Earth's first social behavior, you know, first collective behavior. That part, I think, has to be right, because bacteria are the most ancient living organisms, right? They've been doing this for four billion years, right? And so, did this give rise to multicellularity, to collective behaviors, to, you know, communication? So, the answer is, I don't know. And um, but I think the principles are there, right? Like, how do you robustly convey information? How do you get synchrony, right? How, you know, th there's all these feedback loops and, and amazing engineering feats built into the quorum sensing system that make it so it's not noisy, so they all behave like little soldiers, right? And those kinds of principles are embedded in eukaryotic systems. Is it one for one? You know, I. I don't know. And for sure, the autoinducers, so let's be really clear, the autoinducers that we have found in bacteria, we have never found those genes, you know, the synthases, nor those molecules in eukaryotes. So if eukaryotes have real quorum sensing, it's either molecules that no longer exist in bacteria or ones we haven't found yet, right? Or they, you know, right? Or they, they don't. And I do think that there's something really different about a bacterial biofilm compared to, say, an embryo. You know, in a biofilm where you have this collective behavior, it's maturing, it's developing, the bacteria can stop and start. They can leave, they can come and go, they can do it all over again. You know, when you go from a single cell to a multicellular organism, you know, in an embryo, you know, you have to go from start to finish or you died, right? And you can't stop and start and you can't, you know, and, and nobody can escape and go do it again. And so there is, and all the genomes are identical. Right. Unlike in a biofilm, like we talked about, there can be all kinds of different species there. And so there are real, obviously, there are real, real differences that I think we have to be careful about um, in terms of the what I would love, the grandiose, you know, um, unifying <laughs> philosophy for how, you know, life on Earth evolved. And it all came from quorum sensing. I think I have to be a little more careful than that. Mm -hmm. But there are definitely features that that exist in eukaryotes. And they're embedded in these quorum sensing systems. Sure, sure. Um, do you think there's a biome in about every organ in the human body? I mean, there's yeah, skin I don't know, and right? Oh, for skin and, and gut and obvious you know, wherever places, it's but yeah, obvious places. I'm I'm a believer, right? You know, but now you know people find things in the brain and they find things, you know, and so I I think. You know, maybe I'm as bad as the people we were talking about at the beginning. You know, I'm a little skeptical, right, about that because bacteria cause disease. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And health. Like, we now know they give us our lives, too. And so maybe I should be a lot more open-minded about those things. But, um, again, time's on the side of the scientists that are showing where these bacteria do and don't exist, say, in the human body. Right? And so we will know. Yeah, I mean, even if there's not actual bacteria in an organ, some type of circulating factor from okay, another right. biome could have an effect there as okay, well. Okay, yeah, so that part, I think, is going to be a given. And, of course, again, you, you're talking to a person who's worked on chemical, you know, secreted chemicals as mediators her whole life. And so the idea that these bacteria do 
all of this biochemistry, even if it's just in your gut. And molecules go everywhere. I mean, that's supposed to happen, right? And that these molecules are driving that, you know, human or animal behavior. Like, that's becoming clearer and clearer and clearer, right? And so I think that's an incredible treasure trove um, of exciting, you know, metabolic ingenuity that's waiting to be discovered and manipulated for health, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, I don't, maybe we can go back to the very beginning. You know, when I started in this field, it was kind of thought that, you know, bacteria was, were solved. You know, they gave us DNA, RNA proteins, right? And they were just awesome for the reasons you said, right? Your Jacob Mano paper, you know, they were awesome, but that the really great stuff that was left to discover was all in eukaryotes. And of course, there's great stuff to discover in eukaryotes, but bacteria are having this renaissance, Right? So first of all, there's quorum senses, there's collective behaviors, there's biofilms that are so medically relevant. Now we know that phages are eavesdropping on quorum sensing, the eukaryotes are participating in quorum sensing, and there's the microbiome, right? And all the biochemistry and the magic and the bad stuff that it does. It's just an amazing time to work on bacteria, you know, if they interest you. Yeah. Like we are not done, and there's, the horizon is so bright for us. It, it, it's just, um, it's amazing what's happened, you know, in these 20 years and the, you know, like we're not working on the leftovers here. No, right? not at all. Not, I mean, whole new areas where, you know, many, many people can spend their entire career studying those topics. I, I, um, and I, I wanted to kind of ask one final question. I always ask this of most of the guests, at least, and that is uh, your your advice for young scientists, um, young graduate students, postdocs, even junior faculty who are you know, just at early stages or kind of early independent stages of, of their uh, careers. And um, you've touched on some of the challenges you've had and how you've kind of battled through some of those and you've main, obviously maintained your enthusiasm and excitement, but if you have any general advice for young people out there, I always uh, would like to hear it from the guests. Yeah. So maybe I don't know that I have more, you know, insight than anyone, but I guess what I would say, and I'll just try to connect it to what I was possibly what I was saying at the beginning of the my conversation with you. You know, I don't. I never had very much confidence, <laughs> right? And I never thought I was you know, very good as a scientist. You know, I didn't get all A's. I struggled in my classes. And I guess what I see happen a lot now, and, and I want to be careful, it wasn't dumb luck that got me onto your podcast, right? But but I think I often see young people, and maybe this is even a little younger than what you're talking about, like starting scientists, but it happens, I see it with the junior faculty in my department and postdocs and graduate students too, is that people confuse, I think, a, a challenge, you know, something that's hard, you know, and kicking your butt, you know, like you don't get the, you don't get an A or you don't get the right result or your experiment doesn't work or you don't get a grant, you know, they confuse, and I did this all the time, you confuse a challenge with not being good at something. And I think they're two really different things, right? And so I don't want a life where I go home and watch reality TV at 5 o'clock at night, right? So the fact that I still have the struggle, you know, and it's still hard for me to learn things, and it's still hard, you know, I have to ponder over these data and 
make all these mistakes and, you know, people don't like my grants and they reject my papers. And, you know, and then the equivalent of that, your experiment doesn't work. You don't get an A, you don't get whatever some goal that you had. You know, that's really good. You know, if it all came easy and it wasn't challenging, you picked the wrong field. And so I think you have to, I wish that people could do better at at reveling in challenges and saying, I picked, the, you know, do, just asking yourself, do I or do I not enjoy this? Even if it's sort of this high impact, you know, neurotic, you know, enjoyment, mm-hmm. right? Relentless enjoyment you still want to have a life that's filled with challenges. And so like what I would say is I still go running in when we, you know, we're in COVID right now, but when I can, I go running in wondering what's in the incubator every day of my life. I can't wait to get to work, to find these surprises and to struggle over them. And I think that's a great life. And if I had confused challenges with being identical to me, not being any good at this, they're not the same thing. Yeah. And I'm really glad that somehow I navigated this and, and kept going and nobody told me not to go, keep going because I was interested. But I see people sometimes get you know, downhearted and think maybe they didn't pick the right career. And I think, yes, you did, if you like it. Yeah. yeah. You see what I mean? And, yeah. and so, yeah, get a B. That means it was hard. <laughs> like who wants a life that you get all A's? You're, you're home at 5 o'clock, you know, with nothing to do. So, I don't know. I hope that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, get a B. As long as you fought hard for that B, that's what, that's yeah, what and matters. That, yeah. And that the problems, like, like actually, you know, interested your brain. You know, and so, you know, like, I get Bs and Cs all the time. We get stuff wrong all the time. You know, and people tell me no all the time. And I kind of take that as a dare now, right? And I think that's a thrilling life. Mm-hmm. Right? And these bacteria, I'll never figure this out. Right? And um, that's a thrilling life. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think that's an excellent point. Um, you know, even very accomplished people still deal with some failures and some rejections, and and you learn from that. But as long as you're interested and enthusiastic about what you're doing, that each day when you wake up, that's a real motivating force. And um, I, I really appreciate you sharing some of the challenges and and uh, obvious, like I said before, you, you're still incredibly enthusiastic, and that's all that's all that really matters. Yeah, it's um, a privilege to get to do this, right? To like be a person to, that gets to think up an idea that no one has ever thought of before, right? That's a privilege, and it's a it's a rush, right? So, and yeah. maybe I'll say one more thing. I know we're going along. The other thing, too, is you don't have to do, okay, this is quorum sensing. The group gets more than the individual. It's my life's work, right? But you don't do this alone, right? Like where ideas come from in the group and working together and having, like, it's a really, really fun social collective life to be mm-hmm. a scientist, right? The group comes up with ideas and the group helps you and the group works on things together. And so it's a life that's not isolating too, which I, you know, of course I like communication. I like group, group behaviors. Right. Mm. But I think if you like that kind of thing, science is for you. Yeah. Well, I think those are the excellent words to end on. And uh, Bonnie, I I'd just like to thank you again for taking the time to talk to me. And it was just fascinating to hear about this, uh, 
you know, your various discoveries, and it's just such an interesting story. And uh, thanks, and I wish you well in the future. Why, thank you for inviting me on this. Uh, on behalf of my gang, who made the actual discoveries, it's a real pleasure. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye.